Story One of Youth and the Bright Medusa and the Troll Garden by Willa Cather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story One Coming Aphrodite, Part Six and Seven. Six. In time they quarrelled, of course, and about an abstraction, as young people often do, as mature people almost never do. Eden came in late one afternoon. She had been with some of her musical friends to lunch at Burton Ives' studio, and she began telling Hedger about its splendors. He listened a moment and then threw down his brushes. "'I know exactly what it's like,' he said impatiently. "'A very good department store conception of a studio. It's one of the show places.' "'Well, it's gorgeous, and he said I could bring you to see him.' The boys tell me he's awfully kind about giving people a lift, and you might get something out of it." Hedger started up and pushed his canvas out of the way. What could I possibly get from Burton Ives? He's almost the worst painter in the world—the stupidest, I mean. Eden was annoyed. Burton Ives had been very nice to her and had begged her to sit for him. "'You must admit that he's a very successful one,' she said coldly. Of course he is, as anybody can be successful who will do that sort of thing. I wouldn't paint his pictures for all the money in New York. Well, I saw a lot of them, and I think they are beautiful. Hedger bowed stiffly. What's the use of being a great painter if nobody knows about you? Eden went on persuasively. Why don't you paint the kind of pictures people can understand? And then, after you're successful, do whatever you like. As I look at it, said Hedger brusquely, I am successful. Eden glanced about. Well, I don't see any evidences of it, she said, biting her lip. He has a Japanese servant and a wine cellar and keeps a riding horse. Hedger melted a little. My dear, I have the most expensive luxury in the world, and I am much more extravagant than Burton Ives for I work to please nobody but myself. You mean you could make money and don't? That you don't try to get a public? Exactly. A public only wants what has been done over and over. I'm painting for painters who haven't been born. What would you do if I brought Mr. Ives down here to see your things? Well, for God's sake, don't. Before he left, I'd probably tell him what I thought of him. Eden rose. I give you up. You know very well there's only one kind of success that's real. Yes, but it's not the kind you mean. So you've been thinking me a scrub painter who needs a helping hand from some fashionable studio man. What the devil have you had anything to do with me for, then? There's no use talking to you, said Eden, walking slowly toward the door. I've been trying to pull wires for you all afternoon and this is what it comes to. She had expected that the tidings of a prospective call from the great man would be received very differently, and had been thinking, as she came home in the stage, how, as with a magic wand, she might gild Hedger's future, float him out of his dark hole on a tide of prosperity, see his name in the papers and his pictures in the windows on Fifth Avenue. Hedger mechanically snapped the midsummer leash on Caesar's collar, and they ran downstairs and hurried through Sullivan Street off toward the river. 
He wanted to be among rough, honest people, to get down where the big drays bumped over stone paving blocks, and the men wore corduroy trousers and kept their shirts open at the neck. He stopped for a drink in one of the sagging bar rooms on the waterfront. He had never in his life been so deeply wounded. He did not know he could be so hurt. He had told this girl all his secrets. On the roof, in these warm, heavy summer nights, with her hands locked in his, he had been able to explain all his misty ideas about an unborn art the world was waiting for, had been able to explain them better than he had ever done to himself, and she had looked away to the chattels of this uptown studio and coveted them for him. To her he was only an unsuccessful Burton Ives. Then why, as he had put it to her, did she take up with him? Young, beautiful, talented as she was, why had she wasted herself on a scrub? Pity? Hardly. She wasn't sentimental. There was no explaining her. But in this passion that had seemed so fearless and so fated to be, his own position now looked to him ridiculous, a poor dauber without money or fame. It was her caprice to load him with favors. Hedger ground his teeth so loud that his dog, trotting beside him, heard him and looked up. While they were having supper at the oysterman's, he planned his escape. Whenever he saw her again, everything he had told her that he would never have told anyone would come back to him ideas he had never whispered even to the painter whom he worshipped and had gone all the way to france to see to her they must seem his apology for not having horses and a valet or merely the puerile boastfulness of a weak man yet if she slipped the bolt to-night and came through the doors and said oh weak man i belong to you what could he do that was the danger he would catch the train out to Long Beach tonight, and tomorrow he would go on to the north end of Long Island, where an old friend of his had a summer studio among the sand dunes. He would stay until things came right in his mind, and she could find a smart painter, or take her punishment. When he went home, Eden's room was dark. She was dining out somewhere. He threw his things into a hold-all he had carried about the world with him, strapped up some colors and canvases, and ran downstairs. 7. Five days later, Hedger was a restless passenger on a dirty, crowded Sunday train coming back to town. Of course, he saw now how unreasonable he had been in expecting a Huntington girl to know anything about pictures. Here was a whole continent full of people who knew nothing about pictures, and he didn't hold it against them. What had such things to do with him and Eden Bower? When he lay out on the dunes, watching the moon come up out of the sea, it had seemed to him that there was no wonder in the world like the wonder of Eden Bower. He was going back to her because she was older than art, because she was the most overwhelming thing that had ever come into his life. He had written her yesterday, begging her to be at home this evening, telling her that he was contrite and wretched enough. 
Now that he was on his way to her, his stronger feeling unaccountably changed to a mood that was playful and tender. He wanted to share everything with her, even the most trivial things. He wanted to tell her about the people on the train, coming back tired from their holiday, with bunches of wilted flowers and dirty daisies, to tell her that the fishman, to whom she had often sent him for lobsters, was among the passengers, disguised in a silk shirt and a spotted tie, and how his wife looked exactly like a fish, even to her eyes, on which cataracts were forming. He could tell her, too, that he hadn't as much as unstrapped his canvases. That ought to convince her. In those days passengers from Long Island came into New York by ferry. Hedger had to be quick about getting his dog out of the express car in order to catch the first boat. The East River and the bridges and the city to the west were burning in the conflagration of the sunset. There was that great homecoming reach of evening in the air. The car changes from the 34th Street were too many and too perplexing. For the first time in his life, Hedger took a hansom cab for Washington Square. Caesar sat bolt upright on the worn leather cushion beside him, and they jogged off, looking down on the rest of the world. It was twilight when they drove down Lower Fifth Avenue into the square, and through the arch behind them were the two long rows of pale violet lights that used to bloom so beautifully against the gray stone and asphalt. Here and yonder about the square hung globes that shed a radiance not unlike the blue mists of evening, emerging softly when daylight died, as the stars emerged in the thin blue sky. Under them the sharp shadows of the trees fell on the cracked pavement and the sleeping grass. The first stars and the first lights were growing silver against the gradual darkening when Hedger paid his driver and went into the house, which, thank God, was still there. On the hall table lay his letter of yesterday, unopened. He went upstairs with every sort of fear and every sort of hope clutching at his heart. It was as if tigers were tearing him. Why was there no gas burning in the top hall? He found matches and the gas bracket. He knocked, but got no answer. Nobody was there. Before his own door were exactly five bottles of milk standing in a row. The milk boy had taken spiteful pleasure in thus reminding him that he forgot to stop his order. Hedger went down to the basement. It, too, was dark. The janitress was taking her evening airing on the basement steps. She sat waving a palm-leaf fan majestically, her dirty calico dress open at the neck. She told him at once that there had been changes. Miss Bower's room was to let again, and the piano would go to-morrow. Yes, she left yesterday. She sailed for Europe with friends from Chicago. They arrived on Friday, heralded by many telegrams. Very rich people they were said to be, though the man had refused to pay the nurse a month's rent in lieu of notice, which would have been only right, as the young lady had agreed to take the rooms until October. Mrs. Foley had observed, too, that he didn't overpay her or Willie for their trouble, and a great deal of trouble they had been put to, certainly. Yes, the young lady was very pleasant, but the nurse said there were rings on the mahogany table 
where she had put tumblers and wine glasses. It was just as well she was gone. The Chicago man was uppish in his ways, but not much to look at. She supposed he had poor health, for there was nothing to him inside his clothes. Hedger went slowly up the stairs. Never had they seemed so long, or his legs so heavy. The upper floor was emptiness and silence. He unlocked his room, lit the gas, and opened the windows. When he went to put his coat in the closet, he found, hanging among his clothes, a pale, flesh-tinted dressing-gown he had liked to see her wear, with a perfume, oh, a perfume, that was still Eden Bower. He shut the door behind him, and there, in the dark, for a moment, he lost his manliness. It was when he held this garment to him that he found a letter in the pocket. The note was written with a lead pencil, in haste. She was sorry that he was angry, but she still didn't know just what she had done. She had thought Mr. Ives would be useful to him. She guessed he was too proud. She wanted awfully to see him again, but fate came knocking at her door after he had left her. She believed in fate. She would never forget him, and she knew he would become the greatest painter in the world. Now she must pack. She hoped he wouldn't mind her leaving the dressing-gown. Somehow she could never wear it again. After Hedger read this, standing under the gas, he went back into the closet and knelt down before the wall. The knot-hole had been plugged up with a ball of wet paper, the same blue note-paper on which her letter was written. He was hard hit. Tonight he had to bear the loneliness of a whole lifetime. Knowing himself so well, he could hardly believe that such a thing had ever happened to him, that such a woman had lain happy and contented in his arms. And now it was over. He turned out the light and sat down on his painter's stool before the big window. Caesar, on the floor beside him, rested his head on his master's knee. We must leave Hedger thus, sitting in his tank with his dog, looking up at the stars. Coming Aphrodite This legend in electric lights over the Lexington Opera House had long announced the return of Eden Bower to New York after years of spectacular success in Paris. She came at last under the management of an American opera company, but bringing her own chef d'orchestre. One bright December afternoon, Eden Bower was going down Fifth Avenue in her car, on the way to her broker in William Street. Her thoughts were entirely upon stocks, Cerro de Pasco and how much she would buy of it, when she suddenly looked up and realized that she was skirting Washington Square. She had not seen the place since she rolled out of it in an old-fashioned four-wheeler to seek her fortune eighteen years ago. Arrêtez, Alphonse, attendez-moi, she called, and opened the door before he could reach it. The children, who were streaking over the asphalt on roller skates, saw a lady in a long fur coat and short high-heeled shoes, alight from a French car, and pace slowly about the square, holding her muff to her chin. This spot, at least, had changed very little, she reflected. The same trees, the same fountain, the white arch, and over yonder Garibaldi drawing the sword for freedom. 
there, just opposite her, was the old brick house. Yes, this is the place, she was thinking. I can smell the carpets now, and the dog. What was his name? That grubby bathroom at the end of the hall, and that dreadful hedger. Still, there was something about him, you know. She glanced up and blinked against the sun. From somewhere in the crowded quarter south of the square, a flock of pigeons rose, wheeling quickly upward into the brilliant blue sky. She threw back her head, pressed her muff closer to her chin, and watched them with a smile of amazement and delight. So they still rose, out of all that dirt and noise and squalor, fleet and silvery, just as they used to rise that summer when she was twenty and went up in a balloon on Coney Island. Alphonse opened the door and tucked her robes about her. All the way downtown her mind wandered from Cerro de Pasco, and she kept smiling and looking up at the sky. When she had finished her business with the broker, she asked him to look in the telephone book for the address of Monsieur Gaston Jules, the picture dealer, and slipped the paper on which he wrote it into her glove. It was five o'clock when she reached the French Galerie, as they were called. On entering, she gave the attendant her card, asking him to take it to Monsieur Jules. The dealer appeared very promptly and begged her to come into his private office, where he pushed a great chair toward his desk for her and signaled his secretary to leave the room. "'How good your lighting is in here,' she observed, glancing about. "'I met you at Simon's studio, didn't I? Oh, no, I never forget anybody who interests me.' She threw her muff on his writing-table and sank into the deep chair. "'I have come to you for some information that's not in my line. Do you know anything about an American painter named Hedger?' He took the seat opposite her. "'Don Hedger? But certainly. There are some very interesting things of his in an exhibit at B's. If you would care to—' She held up her hand. "'No, no, I've no time to go to exhibitions. Is he a man of any importance?' "'Certainly he is one of the first men among the moderns. That is to say, among the very moderns. He is always coming up with something different.' He often exhibits in Paris. You must have seen. No, I tell you, I don't go to exhibitions. Has he had great success? That is what I want to know. Monsieur Jules pulled at his short grey moustache. But, madame, there are many kinds of success, he began cautiously. Madame gave a dry laugh. Yes, so he used to say. We once quarrelled on that issue. And how would you define his particular kind? Monsieur Jules grew thoughtful. He is a great name with all the young men, and he is decidedly an influence in art. But one can't definitely place a man who is original, erratic, and who is changing all the time. She cut him short. Is he much talked about at home? In Paris, I mean? Thanks. That's all I want to know. She rose and began buttoning her coat. One doesn't like to have been an utter fool, even at twenty. Mais non, Monsieur Jules handed her her muff with a quick, sympathetic glance. He followed her out through the carpeted showroom, now closed to the public, 
and draped in cheesecloth, and put her into her car with words appreciative of the honor she had done him in calling. Leaning back in the cushions, Eden Bower closed her eyes and her face as the street lamps flashed their ugly orange light upon it, became hard and settled like a plaster cast. So a sail that has been filled by a strong breeze behaves when the wind suddenly dies. Tomorrow night the wind would blow again, and this mask would be the golden face of Aphrodite. But a big career takes its toll, even with the best of luck. End of Story 1, Parts 6 and 7